0: Welcome to the African Campfire Stories. This podcast is dedicated to the telling of African history stories and events. To bring African history to you, we have to read through a lot of facts and details. Should you pick up anything we get wrong, or should you just want to reach us, please use our social media pages or our website. We are African Campfire Stories on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook. Our website is www.africancampfirestories.com. Podcast episodes and other content, including articles on African history, can be found on the website. Today's episode is episode 3 of our mini-series, which we call the Christmas and Hanukkah Special. Episode 1 serves as the very necessary introduction to this topic, where we set out the scope of the mini-series and provide some of the problematic aspects of dealing with such a sensitive topic. We also introduce the key tenets of Judaism in episode 1 and we provide a look at the chaos that was prevalent in Canaan or Judea as it was known at the time. It is the chaos from which both Christianity and Judaism would be born. Episode 2 gets deeper into the discussion of Judaism and explores the promise that the Jewish people believe that God made to them. That promise serves as one of the key foundational aspects of Judaism. We will also provide a detailed look at the conflict that led to the establishment of the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah. We would like to recommend that you listen to episode 1 and 2 of the mini-series before listening to today's episode. With the preliminaries out of the way, we will now go into today's episode. This is Christmas and Hanukkah Special, Episode 3 Judaism and Christianity. Open quote We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. Quote. This is a seemingly simple and straightforward quote. It is taken from the famous Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is the document that was the outcome of the First Council of Nicaea, an ecumenical Christian church conference that was held in the small town of Nicaea, modern-day Iznik in Turkey, in the year AD 325. The conference was held at the behest of the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great and the who's who of senior church bishops of the time attended. Historians see the main purpose of the Council of Nicaea as being to arrive at a common definition of the nature of Jesus Christ, to deal with Arianism, to deal with the issue of the celebration of Easter including the date for Easter, the prohibition of kneeling on Sundays. Dealing with Christians who had backslided. There were many other discussion points of course. The quote we just read out above is one of the key parts of the Nicene Creed. If not the key part. They deal with the issue of the nature of Christ and the issue of Arianism. Arianism was named after Arius. Arius was one of the more influential founding founders of the Christian church. He was from Africa modern-day Libya to be specific. More on him and other founding fathers on the next episode. Words and phrases from the quote such as eternally begotten and begotten not made might seem innocuous to many ordinary modern-day listeners including modern-day Christians. But those words were put into the Nicene Creed precisely because in the early history of Christianity. There were heated arguments about Christians about the nature of Jesus Christ vis-à-vis God. Another creed that has been influential is the Apostles' Creed, which was first mentioned in a letter from the year A.D. 390. Here is a brief quote from the creed, Open quote. and in Jesus Christ his Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried." Close quote. The Apostles' Creed is considered by scholars to be different from the Nicene Creed including mainly in the following ways. The Apostles' Creed says nothing about the preexistence of Jesus Christ and it talks about Jesus' incarnation. The Nicene Creed seeks to highlight Jesus Christ's eternal divinity, one of the key phrases in this regard. Is the one that says One in being with the father This is from the Greek word Homousios Which means Of the same substance So other translations of the Nicene Creed From the original Greek Have this phrase as saying Being of one substance with the father The supporters of the Nicene Creed Wanted to use this phrase To communicate that Jesus Christ and God Are united in their essence Those in attendance at the council who did not agree with this perspective, were of the view that Jesus Christ and God were united only in their will and not in their nature or their essence. The leader of this dissenting group was the Libyan Arius, whom we have mentioned above. This was such a big issue to the point that it was threatening to destroy Christianity while it was still in its infancy. What made things complicated for people like Constantine the Great who wanted to establish a standardized version of Christianity through a standardized explanation of the nature of Jesus Christ, is that there were many definitions of what Christianity was. The fact that the Council of 325 AD is called the First Council of Nicaea should let you know that this council wouldn't be the last. The Second Council of Nicaea was held in 787 AD. Actually, between the first and the second councils of Nicaea, there would be four other ecumenical councils, the Council of Chalcedon, the Council of Ephesus, and two councils of Constantinople prior to the year of AD 325. There were many other similar meetings between Christian scholars and bishops. Some historians call these meetings pre-ecumenical councils or synods. The word ecumenical can be defined as something that represents a number of different Christian churches. Or it can also be defined as promoting or relating to unity amongst various Christian churches. So, in that vein, it would make sense why these councils and synods that took place before the first council of Nicaea were called pre-ecumenical. Because these councils were usually confined to a city or region, or a province. They were not like the Council of Nicaea, where all influential bishops in the Roman world were invited. However, these pre-ecumenical councils and synods did not have a lot of impact on the Christian church and Christian scholarship. We will not get into detail here about what these councils were about. We will list some of them here, so that you can read about them yourself, should you be interested. 1. The Council of Jerusalem, held around 50 AD. 2. The Council of Rome, held at 155 AD. 3. The Council of Rome, 193 AD. 4. The Council of Ephesus, 193 AD. 5. The Council of Carthage, 251 AD. Another Council of Carthage was held in 311 AD. The Synod of Ansira 314 AD, etc. The pre-ecumenical councils and synods are seen by some historians as representing the time when Christianity was much freer. The idea of what should be considered standard Christianity had not solidified. In fact, it would have been difficult for such an idea to be solidified at a time when both Christians and Jews only formed about 7% of the population of the Roman Empire as stated in episode 2 of this mini-series. Also. The Roman Empire was essentially pagan before Constantine the Great took power, a word of caution here. When we say pagan, we do not mean that as an insult to any religion. This word is used by scholars to denote the religions that were available around the time of early Christianity that did not believe in the novel idea of only one God. When it comes to the full scale of arguments amongst early Christian scholars and bishops, there is no way that an African history podcast can hope to cover all the details and shades of the debates that went on. You can listen to podcasts like the History in the Bible podcast and History of the Papacy podcast. There you will find these debates in their detail. You can also refer to the reading list that will accompany this episode for the sources we have used that will contain more detail on the subject of early Christianity, including the early Christian debates and pre-ecumenical and ecumenical councils, Arianism, dissenting Christian groups, etc. etc. However, we will cover a bit of these arguments in the next episode. In the centuries leading to the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, Christianity had come a long way from the original code that had formed around Jesus Christ's disciples in what was at the time called Judea. By the time of the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, Christianity had even arrived in the Egyptian city of Alexandria. This is said to have occurred around 60 AD. By the 2nd century AD, Christianity is said to have reached the areas around modern-day Tunisia an area that was still known as Carthage at the time. This explains the two pre-ecumenical councils of Carthage we have mentioned above. Africa, in the form of modern Ethiopia, can even boast as one of the first places in the world to make Christianity an official religion of the state. This occurred in the kingdom of Aksum, modern-day Ethiopia, in the 4th century AD, 330 AD to be specific. There are, however, pieces of information available to historians that indicate that Christianity had arrived in Ethiopia way before the 330 AD date, as early as the first century AD, in fact. One of the first and best known references to the introduction of Christianity in Ethiopia is the Second Testament of the Bible itself, on the Book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 26 to 38. These verses Talk of Philip the Evangelist And that he converted an Ethiopian court official in the 1st century AD This court official worked on the court of Queen Candace And the Bible calls Candace a queen of the Ethiopians However, scholars also point out that the word Ethiopian Was a term that was commonly used for black Africans at the time So it is possible that this conversion by Philip the Evangelist was not of an ethnic Ethiopian per se. Some scholars suspect that this event might have occurred in neighboring Nubia, that is modern-day Sudan. As for Philip the Evangelist himself, he seems to have been a very important figure of the early Christian church. He appears a few times in the aforementioned Book of Acts, including a mention that he was visited by the Apostle Paul himself. Judaism, however, arrived in Ethiopia way before Christianity arrived. But this makes sense because Judaism is a much much older religion compared to Christianity and as we have stated in the first two episodes of this series, Judaism is the basis upon which Christianity is founded. The Ethiopian Orthodox Bible, which we will talk about in the next episode, contains many Jewish Aramaic words. It is also possible that the first testament of the Bible in Ethiopia may have been translated from Hebrew, with assistance from the Jews. Ethiopia has one of the oldest Jewish communities on earth. Some of these communities are over 2,000 years old. The Ethiopian Jews are known as Beta Israel. The term means House of Israel in the Je'ez language, one of the languages used in the Horn of Africa region. In the next episode, we will look at the different stories of how Jews arrived in Ethiopia and other Ethiopian-related Judaism and Christianity origin stories, including the assertion that Ethiopian Emperor Menelik I was the son of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Most of Ethiopian Jews have immigrated to the country of Israel in recent times. We are not a Current Affairs podcast. But you can Google the kinds of complications and issues that exist today between the modern state of Israel, the Jewish people of color, aka the Mizrahi, and Ethiopian Jews, and African Jews in general. Including the issue of their immigration to Israel, which has been a hot news item in recent years. You can also check out our reading list for your further reading on these subjects from authors like Judith Antonelli and Shalva Veil. The fact of having people asserting Jewish descendants is not just limited to Africa. There have been communities and far and unrelated places such as India and South America that assert that they are the original Jews. One of the key factors that underpin these claims is the story of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. We mentioned in episode 1 how Judaism came from the very chaotic nature of Canaan. In both episodes 1 and 2, we presented stories which showed the very serious and complicated conflicts in the region. These conflicts, wars and other disasters would become the events that would define how Judaism evolved. The story of the 10 lost tribes is one of these events. When King Solomon died in 930 BC, the Jewish state in Canaan split into a northern and southern portion. The northern state was known as Israel, with Samaria as the capital city. The southern state was called Judah, with Jerusalem as the city. The northern state of Israel contained the ten Jewish tribes, and southern state of Judah contained the balance of the Jewish tribes, meaning the other two tribes. Around 740 BC, the Assyrian Empire, led by King Sargon II, attacked and destroyed the northern state of Israel. The first time in this story that we mentioned the king of Assyria was in episode 2. At this time Assyria controlled the area of Canaan, including both Israel and Judah. Israel was attacked by Assyria because Israel rebelled against the Assyrian influence. Around 27,000 of Israel's Jews were deported to Assyria, which was based roughly around the Mesopotamia region, the area of modern-day Iraq and Iran. The Jewish communities of Iran and Iraq claim descent from the 10 lost tribes. Genetic studies have shown that Iranian and Iraqi Jews were separated from other Jewish communities around 2,500 years ago. However, as stated above, there are other communities around the world that claim descent from the 10 lost tribes. Historians claim that the 10 tribes of Israel vanished from history at this point. Thus, this is why all over the world there have been claim after claim by peoples who truly believe that they belong to these 10 lost tribes of Israel. After the Assyrian king Sargon died, the kingdom of Judah rebelled against Assyria. Egypt supported Israel's rebellion. However, both Judah and Egypt would be quickly put back in their place in subservience by the Assyrians. Its trials and tribulations like this. That would influence the creation and trajectory of Judaism. Some of these key tribulations are very famous. Take for instance the Exodus from Egypt. In episode 2 we began talking about the story of Abraham and the promise the Jewish people believe God made to them through Abraham around 1943 BCE. Centuries later around 1300 BCE the prophet Moses is said to have freed the descendants of Abraham from Egypt. This story is contained in the book of Exodus. Historians are still debating the history of the Exodus. However, if you may recall what we said in episode 2, the point here is that the people who follow Judaism believe in this story. So does Christians and Muslims. And belief, where acted upon, produces reality. Check out episode 2 for more discussions about this particular fact and how arguing about facts versus non-facts is largely an academic exercise when it comes to scripture. In episode 2 we provide a rundown of the times that Canaan was invaded and taken over by the outside powers. Another Jewish tribulation we provide in episode 2 has to do with the story of Antiochus IV and the story of Hanukkah. In episode 1 we looked at the first Jewish-Roman war. There was also a second Jewish-Roman war which we had not touched on so far. This sequel took place between 115 AD and 117 AD. We will discuss that one on the next episode, when we delve deeper into Christianity. After the Exodus, the next influential Jewish tribulation is the exile of the Jews to Babylon, which as we said in episode 2, occurred after the Jews led by Zedekiah rebelled against Babylonian rule around 586 BCE. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. This event is so important in the development of Judaism that the strand of Judaism that developed after the Jews were freed from the Babylonian exile has a name. It is called Second Temple Judaism. Another strand of Judaism that also has a famous name is called Rabbinic Judaism. Many historians believe its formation or development was related to the defeat of the Jews by the Romans in the Second Jewish-Roman War. After Jesus Christ was crucified, approximately between 30 AD and 33 AD, the followers of the strand of Judaism that had developed by him would slowly but surely separate themselves from the mother religion of Judaism. More on all these points on the next episode. We will close today's episode by returning on the story of the promise between Abraham and God. In the last episode, we looked at the promise that the Jewish people believe God made to them through the person of the highly revered Abraham. The promise was about the land of Canaan and peace and prosperity that the Jews would have on this land. This was however based on the condition that the Jewish people would obey God and be devoted to him and him alone. The land which God promised to Abraham had been occupied before he arrived there. Some of the earliest estimates say the land had occupants from around 5000 BCE. We have stated in previous episodes that the fact that this promised land had people who occupied it already would make keeping it a difficult task. The other issue had to do with the strategic location of the land. The many conflicts and invasions that we have discussed that occurred over this land attest to the strategic importance of Canaan. If you know Jewish history or the first testament of the Bible, you will know that the descendants of Abraham would have trouble keeping their part of the bargain to God. In fact, it was Abraham himself who would be the first to find it hard to obey God all the times and not sin. The following story is contained in the book of Genesis, especially on chapter 12, 13, and 20. A while after Abraham had moved to Canaan, there was hunger or famine in Canaan. Abraham abandoned the promised land and moved to Egypt. This move broke the promise between himself and God. When he got to Egypt, he lied and said his wife was his sister because he was afraid that since his wife was beautiful, powerful, people in Egypt might kill him and take his wife away from him. In any case the Pharaoh of Egypt did take Abraham's wife, whom the Pharaoh thought was Abraham's sister. Then God is said to have punished the Pharaoh for sleeping with Abraham's wife. This happened regardless of the fact that Pharaoh had no idea that he was doing anything wrong. Eventually the Pharaoh did find out that Abraham had lied and that this had caused the Pharaoh to sleep with another man's wife. Throughout the first testament of the Bible, you come across too many instances where Abraham's descendants, i.e. the Jewish people, disobey God, sin against God and lose faith in God, forsaking him at the drop of a dime. It was not just the layman man on the street that was behaving this way against God. It was kings. As in the case of King David and King Solomon and King Manasseh for instance, the latter's behavior is just as atrocious. He installed male prostitutes in the temple, introduced statues of two pagan gods into the temple and supported sacrifice in the form of roasting of children. It was also prophets who disobeyed God for instance, even the prophet Moses himself. Even priests and high priests joined in this disobedience. For instance, the Sadducees, a priestly class or caste, were notorious for siding with whomever was oppressing the Jewish people at various times in history. God is thus forced to be always punishing someone. Whether it's the Jewish people themselves or like in the above story of Abraham and Pharaoh, God is punishing the enemies of the Jewish people. There is so much of this that it led to one of the founding fathers of Christianity, a man named Martian, to go as far as saying that the God of the First Testament is so cruel That he cannot be the same God that appears in the Second Testament who is so forgiving and kind. But we'll cover such controversial views from the founding fathers of Christianity on the next episode. Some would say that by doing all these things against the will of God, the Jews had forfeited their promise made to them by God. So maybe it was time for a new promise between God and the people. A promise that would not just be limited to the Jewish people and Canaan. Christianity is about to rise. We look into that and more on the next episode.